0: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you like Inglourious Trexperts, you'll love Disco Nights, the new Star Trek Discovery podcast hosted by Chase Masterson, featuring special guests every week. Don't miss it every Thursday night, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome. Today it's Have Phaser Will Travel. This is the one well, I've been waiting for Awesome. This, I've been waiting for it. Well, nobody knows who you are yet. I haven't oh, I'm sorry. You. You're jumping the gun, which is, I guess <laughs> is appropriate for a, a show about how God will travel. I want to introduce you to our guest today, once back uh, returning uh, champ and uh, guest and still champion. Uh, director Art Meyer Burnett is with us.
1: Greetings. But can I say that you've put this horrible
0: dreadnought
1: <laughs> from Star Trek into darkness in front of me? Are you, are you trying to send me a message, Spock?
0: None that I'm conscious of. It's not even my birthday. <laughs> yeah, you're not a fan of the Vengeance. But boy, I have to say, Eagle Moss has done an amazing job with these ships. They really look great.
1: Uh, I mean, Eagle Moss, I love them so much. As a matter of fact... Mr. Drexler, you can get uh, his NX-01 okay.
0: refit. Okay. But I, nobody knows who wow, Mr. Agree. Drexler is because I haven't <laughs> introduced him yet. Okay, so Doug today? Drexler is here. <laughs> now, if you don't know Doug Drexler, you should because he's a first-generation Star Trek fan who actually went on to work on the show for mm-hmm. 17 years. Right. okay right. OG, original he is, our first, <laughs> he is our first Academy Award winner on the show. He's an Emmy Award winner. Thank he's yeah, you a makeup what he artist extraordinaire for Dick Tracy. Yeah. At, that was my makeup with, life. Oh, my God. Let's just distill the whole show. Let's not pretend we have an hour. Let's all say it in the first 10 seconds. Makeup artist, illustrator, visual effects artist, worked on things like Battlestar Galactica. And, and then you did Star Trek and Galactica at the end. Good night. But most importantly, at least to me, is he's a have-gone-will-travel historian, yes. super geek, and paladin cosplayer. And if you're listening to this on... Um, I was going to say, on the radio, if you're listening to this on uh, streaming, uh, listening to the podcast, he is actually decked out as Paladin. We'll put pictures on the uh, Twitter and Instagram for i got a regalia,
2: regalia and it's all real... St- I mean, I don't mean it was what he wore, but my gun belt was made by Alfonso's of uh, Hollywood where uh, the guy who runs the place now, Caesar, his dad worked for Arvo Ohala who trained all those guys how to use the guns and... and uh, Uh, And his dad made these gun belts. So the gun belt is authentic. The hat was made by Baron Hats from the plans that they had in stock. The shirt I'm wearing with the Mandarin collar came from an original shirt, was loaned to a tailor to make it for me and actually have a jacket that was made for me as well so it's like all you know of course i'm only five seven i'm not six one like richard boone was but uh i'm you know fun size paladin you
0: are <laughs> fun size you <laughs> are, are, paladin. are frame accurate except in one respect you don't have the mustache i
2: don't have the mustache well dorothy doesn't really like mustaches. Dorothy, I, your wife it, my dorothy my wife by I, the way
1: one of the coolest women <laughs> in the state of oh california indeed
2: america itself she is Unbelievable. And we've been together 30 years now. And I, and I am not kidding you that we have not once, not ever, had a single disagreeable word or an argument ever. Not so she's ever, an ever, enabler. Ever. <laughs> I mean,
1: I've been to your house. We've shot in your house. Yes. And uh, that's right. you've got one of the great geek mansions. <laughs> I mean, you, you've got stuff from the New York World's Fair now. Oh, yeah. I've I, been watching the progress as that was being put in.
2: I've got the light in my backyard. It's amazing. I, you know, from the fair. I mean, when I was a kid. My dad had a TV repair store a couple of blocks away from the biggest World's Fair probably ever, and uh, I I got to thank him. And, and you know he just passed two weeks ago. And uh, if he's listening, I just have to out there in ether somewhere. Sorry to hear that. Uh, two years in a row while the fair was there, and you gotta imagine the thing about the fair was that it was only there for two years. They took it down, and it was like the, it was like Disney World. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Walt Disney said I'm going to build Disney World in New York, but it's only going to be there two years, I mean, you would be. It's insane. But I got to go twice a week. I was 11 years old. Twice a week, my dad would drop me off at 10 in the morning and pick me up at 10 o'clock at night. And I would just be on my own at 11. And, you know, when I think about that now, it's like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I, I think maybe he was trying to get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) But But I kept coming back.
0: I I love your story about how you realized... Uh, the influence of the World's Fair design on Star Trek.
2: Yes, and when I first started working on the show, of course, I started in makeup, and I got to be friends with Mike Okuda, and then I ended up coming into the art department on Deep Space Nine. And I always told Mike, I said, I'm telling you that star- that the New York World's Fair is ground zero for the design ethic of Star Trek. And he was be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And then one day, we went to dinner with Matt Jeffries. Mm-hmm. And I said, say Matt. Did you ever get to the New York World's Fair? And he's like, oh, my God, yeah, we went and we had an amazing time. And I, I, I studied everything. And when I got back, there was – without any prompting from me, he so said, when I got back, there was a message for me from a guy named Roddenberry. And I kicked Mike under the table. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: What does Mike know, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I slipped the World's Fair into Star Trek every chance that I could, especially like Starfleet. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that Starbase 11 is the New York State Pavilion from the '64. I was just
0: about to ask you that. Yeah, no it doubt about like... it. And you can still see it in Forest Hills. Yeah. yeah.
2: And supposedly it's going to be restored. I mean... You've been it, saying
0: that for years, It though. fell
2: into disrepair. Well, the thing is the borough president, uh, 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 Melissa Katz, uh, is a big fan of the building. And mm-hmm. she's been fighting to get money for it. Actually, the funny thing is that I was talking to them about how we might be able to help in some way. And the vice president of the borough called me at home. And it's it's Armin it it's um
0: It's Arm Sherman?
2: No, no, it's not Arm Sherman, but it's it's Max Gradenchek's brother.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> is the assistant
2: uh Uh, president vice president of the borough of queens six degrees of star (laughs) trek
1: you know he knows probably all the rules of acquisition so he's going to drive a hard bargain
2: he claims to be the funnier of the
0: two which is kind of hard to believe but not the more neurotic
2: (laughs) (laughs) now i want
1: to ask you too uh, i've never been clear about this the federation trading post which when i was growing up was this mythical place in new york city where you could get anything start you could get patches and stickers and well
2: i mean the thing about the federation trading post is that at that point there was nothing there nothing was literally nothing uh, you know a few odd of course there were the model kits were always there and uh, uh the making a star trek book but whatever toys there were were i mean <laughs> the
3: Terrible. horrific
2: element with a light on top with spock on the front you know uh, and, and so when we did the federation trading post and well i i met a guy named chuck weiss uh Actually, it's funny. I was working at, for a a security uh, alarm company in New York called Homes Protection. And I used to get home. I mean, we used to go into places where alarms went off and find people tied up, and it was crazy. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. But uh, I, I, I would work until about midnight, then I would rush home to watch The Outer Limits. And one night, there was a, a slide with an ad saying, Federation Trading Post, blah, 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 coming soon. And I was like, what the hell? And I... Saw the address was nearby where I worked, and I went over there, and there was that big spock in the window, mm-hmm. you know, with the making the. Rob's from
0: Washington. He didn't have the joy oh, that we had I, being a New Yorker, and then yeah, Darren no. being from uh, well, uh, Delaware. Wasn't the wasn't the store originally in
4: Berkeley? Yes, the, there was one Chuck in Berkeley Weiss first, was, right? Yes,
2: and how they ended up getting a place? I mean, we're talking Fifty Third and Third in Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, right. that's Midtown, some really real estate. And I went over there and met – Chuck was there. They were inside painting the place. And uh, we hit it off. Uh, of course we would. I mean, there's that Star Trek, you know, shared childhood yeah, thing. Yeah, the the minute we of met peace, each other, yeah. it's totally true. And uh, he, he hired me, like, on the spot.
0: <laughs> and then
2: Ron Barlow was, you know, came in. And it was Ron and I basically ran the place. So we had a museum in there. And we made – we made slide sets from our slide collections. I mean, I had huge slide collection. Alan Asherman right. who wrote this Star Trek compendium sure. uh, was in like every day bringing us <laughs> props and uniforms. I mean, in the back we had a museum uh, that had original uniforms from the show. And I mean, it was really uh, amazing. We had posters made and the first couple of months th- there was nobody coming and the local merchants were laughing at us. And, uh, uh, we saved up our, our nickels and dimes. And, and those we those typewriter
0: ran... stores, where are they now? Typewriter stores. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: okay, I got to ask you a question if you had this, because no one has ever been able to confirm this. I was at the Smithsonian Institute in 1979. I went to the Air and Space Museum, and I bought a poster of the Franz Joseph Starbase One from the technical manual. It was a painting, of and it was elongated, so it wasn't flat. It was It was horizontal, not vertical. I mean, it was vertical, not horizontal, and it had a, 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 a destroyer, a single nacelle destroyer flying up to it. I had that on my wall for years. Did you guys have it? No. Have you ever seen that poster? No. I've never seen that poster anywhere that again from. ever.
0: No, he the blueprints of the USS Vengeance. <laughs> no, because
1: if, if it were, it would be better designed <laughs> than be on than his
2: Vengeance.
1: desk. <laughs> <laughs> See, I figured the Federation Trading Post would have had that. I, I've always wanted they to had get everything. that poster again. We it never was the best. We
2: never had that. You know what Can't the biggest it. selling thing of all was? The Spock Pops. It was a chocolate lollipop with oh, Spock's face kidding. on it. We could not keep those things in stock. I, of course, that was followed by the model kits and the mm-hmm. making of Star Trek and the tech manual. And one day I was sitting behind the counter, and this really big guy looked like a Viking came in, looking around and picks up a copy of the making of Star Trek. And he comes up and gets right up and sits on the front counter and looks at me. And I'm like, who the hell is this? And he puts his hand out and he says, Stephen E. Whitfield.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. And I was like, wow. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Stephen E. Whitfield, Stephen Poe, the guy who wrote The Making of Star Trek. um, And he signed my book for me. And oh, it was just great. great to meet him. But then many years later, I'm sitting in the Deep Space Nine art department, and the phone rings, and the voice says, uh, 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 Mike or Denise Okuda there. And I'm like, no, nah, they're not here right now, but can I take a message? I say, would you tell them that Stephen Poe called? And I said, wait a minute. Stephen E. Whitfield Poe. <laughs> and he was, like, blown away. So you
0: knew and who he was. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so we got to be good, real good friends. And, and then he did the Voyager yeah. book. So he was around a lot. I was so lot. lucky
4: to be there at that time. And I got to meet him and talk with what him. What g- Oh, my God. Yeah. It was just Wonderful so guy. great. Because yeah. it was just a connection with everything that yeah. drew me to that spot. Yep. And it was magical.
0: And then and, he, uh, and I'm not as familiar with the story as you guys, wasn't it that he worked for AMT? At the time, yes, and that's, that's how correct. he ended up doing the making of Star Trek book? What's, what, what exactly is the story behind that?
2: Well, I mean, as I understood it, um, he worked for AMT, uh, I, I, th- I think it was as a, uh, something to do with licensing.
4: Yeah, he, he, dealt, with, he dealt with getting licenses and, and, and dealing with the license. rules right.
2: and I think that part of the—they the, made the Galileo shuttle, the AMT speed shop made the Galileo shuttle, I think, gratis, basically. Right,
4: in exchange. In
2: exchange for the licensing rights to the model kits, which right. is like, wow. And, of course, the whole Galileo shuttlecraft thing is such an amazing... Uh, I mean, that was, it was built by Gene Winfield, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. but it was designed by a guy named Kellogg,
4: right.
2: who was an industrial designer, a car designer, who worked with like the greatest industrial designer of all time, Raymond Lowy, right. who designed a car called the Avanti. And mm-hmm. if you ever look at the Avanti, it has you can the same see lines. the lines yeah. of yeah. the shuttlecraft in it, and I mean, it's an amazing. Uh, you know, you you were talking about um,
0: Robert Burnett. You're pointing at. I'm pointing at Rob
2: Burnett. <laughs> you know, Dorothy I've been in your house. Now you call her the Duter. The Deuter, because her last
1: name is her name's Dorothy Duter. Which I just find delightful because I'm like, dude. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, it's like the, uh, 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 what's the movie? Big Lebowski. Uh, Big Lebowski.
1: Right. She yeah. is. The, she is that. She. She ties every room together. She
2: does. I. I, I do not deserve her. I don't deserve her. Sure you but, do. But the thing I want to tell you is that the house that Lebowski goes up to, that uh, the, the, the rich right. guy who is yeah,
0: the, the other Lebowski. Yes,
2: that that's the uh, glass.
4: Tara me- Reed lives in. It- no, it's the other one. It's the uh, it's the, uh, the porn producer. Oh, yes. yeah. The what was his name? I can't remember.
2: I can't remember it either, but it's this amazing house that was designed by uh, John Lautner. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of movies have been shot there. And that in particular. And I hooked up with a gal who, t- who does tours.
1: Don't tell your wife that. Of
2: the house. Well, she's going to come with me, so it's going to be
0: oh, okay. It's okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but we're going to go see that house. I'm really excited about it.
0: You know, what does that have to do with it's anything? It's so funny. I, I, was, I was reading a, a review of this show, this very show, in Glorious Trixperts, online, and they said, you know what I like about this podcast so much is that it doesn't feel like homework, you know, and, 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 and it's kind of funny because, you know, here we are. This episode uh, was going to be about um, Have Gun Will Travel, And we you know, for 20 minutes, you know, it was like, you know, in school, they teach you, you have a thesis and then you back up your thesis. Well, we, we've got nowhere near our thesis. <laughs> this no, isn't or, school, folks. Oh,
2: but my God, I love to talk about Have Gun Will Travel. Well, we should, so talk, we should about talk about Have about Gun it.
0: Will Travel. You know, and people are probably saying, well, in the Star Trek podcast, why are well, you talking about, you know, inglorious uh, gunsprits? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the 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 thing is, I think we all believe in proselytizing for the show because of it, the enormous influence, the enormous danger potential. No, <laughs> the, the, the enormous influence that Have Gun Will Travel had on Star Trek. People don't realize they think, oh, there are only seventy nine episodes of Star Trek of the original Star Trek, um, and but really, if you watch yes. Have Gun Will Travel, there are a lot more episodes of yes. the yes, original mate. Star Trek yes. seasons.
2: Well, I mean, there were... I why think don't you, were first of all, 200... explain what
1: the show is. People, for, pretend there's people out there that have never heard of this show, and what is it? Tell us what it is. Well,
2: it's a Western, but it's not like any of the other Westerns that were being done at the time. I mean, uh, Paladin was a guy who uh, was based in San Francisco. That's why Starfleet Command is there, by the way. Uh, who was, is a gentleman gunfighter. And basically, people send out SOSs for help they 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 get into fixes and you can hire paladin thousand dollars, which is a huge amount of money back then, and often he will give them their money back, or if he thinks that they're worthy he'll do it you know he'll take he'll help them out Proponu. for free but uh San Francisco is his his home base, and uh uh he goes around uh uh, being a good guy, helping people, getting them out of fixes, and some and uh, some of a lot—not some of them, but a lot of the stories are very Star Trek stories, and they are the kind of stories that they told on Star Trek. Uh, that, that it just wasn't simple action adventure stuff. It was uh, very introspective. I mean, Paladin was a bon vivant. He 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 was an expert on wines. He went to the opera. If uh, he was the head of the San Francisco Stock Club. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it 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 was he was such an interesting character. And really, if you watch the show, you will see that Gene Roddenberry took Paladin and broke him, split him up three ways, mm-hmm. into Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Paladin is. As a combination of all three of those guys.
0: Now, you look who else worked on that show. Sam Peoples. I think that's where he met Sam, right? Um, Sam Rolf created it with Herb Meadow. And the thing about Sam Rolfe is Sam Rolfe, at the beginning of his career, did that. He later went on and did The Man from U.N.C.L.E., another Which iconic show. Which was another show. huge
2: influence on Star Trek. Yeah. But but yes. And
0: uh, then, you know, one of the last things Sam Rolfe did before he passed away was an, A Man Alone. It was sort of a Western episode with Odo of Deep Space Nine. It was one of the last things he did. And basically they gave him that because, you know, the people on Deep Space Nine, like Michael and Ira, and, and you know, they know their history. They respected their history. And they gave Sam an episode because it was Sam freaking I Rolfe. Know, that's so
2: amazingly cool. Now, he came up to the art department. I got to meet Sam, mm-hmm. and we took him down on a promenade to show him that on, on there was, an, like an, we called it the ATM, that there were different logos for different, you know, uh, uh, types of species money, and one of them was the man from Uncle Symbol, uh,
0: and it was there for all seven uh, years uh, of, uh, uh, <laughs> that's
2: but cool. the thing was that, uh, b- back then, I couldn't just go on the internet and do research on Sam Rolfe. Right. I, I, I I at the time I didn't realize h- how important he was. I mean now you could go and you could check out everyone's credits and see everything that they've done. Uh but uh <clears throat> yeah, Sam Rolfe. Uh you know, uh have gone oh Don Ingalls
0: mm-hmm. was
2: who wrote for Star Trek, was the script supervisor. Right. Uh w- w- was the story editor. Oh and, and Simon, Simon also yes. wrote yes.
1: for uh And Fred Freiberger, who wrote episodes, came on as the third season producer of the original series. Now, that show was on
2: for seven years. I think it started in 1957. Think about this. Mm -hmm. Think about this. They didn't have 26 episode seasons. They had like 42 episode seasons. Imagine having to come up with 42 good scripts every year.
0: Astounding. Astounding. What was so great about it was, first of all, um, it was a half hour. You know, because they had less commercial time. <clears throat> it felt like a full meal. Yes, it right. felt like a one-hour drama now. It felt like a one-hour show.
2: I mean, it's like, imagine taking a typical one-hour show that's on television and letting all the excess air out of it that it doesn't need. These shows were right to the point. They were lean and mean, and they just got directly to the point. And it was not, they didn't sacrifice anything. As no. a matter of fact, there was more meat on some of these, what were they, were they were like 24 minutes or something altogether? yeah. They're remarkable. And, and, and that real interesting thing is, I mean, look, go back and look at some of the shows from the 60s that were huge, gigantic hits.
0: Gunsmoke, which aired Gunsmoke after Have Gun Will or Travel. or Bonanza. Mm-hmm.
2: No one remembers them.
0: Nobody. And they're unwatchable now.
2: They're unwatchable. I tried to watch a Bonanza the other day. And I was like, my God.
0: Whereas you look at Have Gun Will Travel. First of all, it's shot on film, which it looks weird. But they went on location. I would argue Have Gone Will Travel actually holds up better than the original Star Trek in many ways because they were always on location. They were very rarely on sets. Right. So, I mean, they would go not just to Lone Pine, like a lot of the Westerns at the time. They would go to Arizona. They would go to Utah. So the vistas it are stunning. It felt like a so John real. Ford... West, And this was on TV
4: yeah. in black and white. But remember, being fair, um, because all the infrastructure for Westerns existed. Yes. They were super cheap to make. That's true. Super cheap to make. So, to be fair to the original Star Trek... No, and I'm not who criticizing the original Star tons, Trek. Yeah, understood. But they had tons of production problems that Have Gun Will Travel never
0: did. Yeah, Speaking yeah of course. Of which, I was listening to Disco Nights the other day, uh-huh. the first episode of Disco Nights, our sister uh, show, and I, I enjoyed the show immensely, and Chase did a great job. But one of the girls on that show, uh, Eliza, Eliza Pearl... Eliza Pearl it rhymes with pizza. Eliza, Lisa, Eliza, Eliza <laughs> Pearl. She was criticizing the first season of the original Star Trek. What the hell? That's the best. Season. What is, what is, it, she said it, 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 it's imperfect. Well, no, what is perfect? I, I'm sorry. Nomad was imperfect. The first season <laughs> of the original Star Trek was perfect. Look, except for the alternative factor. No offense, Rob. Oh,
1: uh, hey, you know what? <laughs> hopefully, as That's we as we go along, I enjoy we the the will be quality. we
4: will be able to help. Thank you, Don. The the younger and less um, uh, knowledgeable about such things will help to usher them into we'll this greater them. world of
0: knowledge. I yes. just want to say we love our sister show. And, we and we're amazed. Uh, Chase and everybody over there is doing an amazing job. But it's like, don't say that about the original show because we'll come for you. Oh, let, come on. Let well, me help. You know, <laughs> wait a minute. I want to bring it back to, you know, I did not watch Have Gun Will Travel
1: until I was older. Right. And what struck me is that the two things that were most influential in my young life were Star Trek and then the original Twilight Zone. And CBS was making the original Twilight Zone concurrently with Have Gun, Will Travel. And the one thing that I, I thought was interesting about Have Gun, Will Travel is, like Star Trek, it's really an anthology show with recurring characters. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't any of these long storylines that we see today. You didn't know what you were going to get. You could see an episode that was... was there's all kinds of different things going on in every episode from, from, from show to show, and that's what I think kept it, it fresh. But at its core, the thing I – watching Richard Boone is Richard Boone was like the best of the best, like the characters of, of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. To be on the final frontier, just like to be going out in the West and doing these things, you had to be a moral man. You had to be a learned man. And woman. You had to be the smartest, the best that humanity had to offer. Right. And that's kind of what Paladin was. He was somebody that we all wanted to be. We all wanted to know. He was like the – not, but James Bond had a similar quality. He always knows what temperature to drink Bollinger champagne at, you know, whatever. But that's kind of what Richard Boone was like. But he took all of this knowledge and he used it uh, for a nuanced form of good. He was not just purely good. He was good because his goodness was very earned. Right. And, and that was something that that uh, you—it's an undercurrent of Star Trek and Have Gun Will Travel, but it's all about being smart well, and being educated and being cultured and making goodness
0: a choice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting. That was beautiful. It is. I agree. I love that. I, I agree you. with him. You know, when the show, he thinks you're talking about him. Uh, so, um, but he is that way. No? He, he is. Uh, when I, uh, you know, what's so interesting about the show is it was originally pitched by Sam Rolf and Herb Meadow as sort of an urban noir. It was going to be contemporary at the time. It was going to be said in the '50s about like this philanthropist who would hear about. It was almost about, like the Equalizer. You'd hear about mm-hmm. stuff, and then he would suit up and go and help or Batman. It was really Batman, right? And uh, and and go help uh, help people and CB heard the pitch and they said we really like this but we need a western right so can you do this in the old west i'm like sure <laughs> and it's so funny because that's the, always the answer to pitch meeting yeah. can you do this yes we can <laughs> you know uh can you do it for 12 dollars yes we can um so he uh they changed it. and i think that benefited the show enormously because it went against all the archetypes and the cliches you know first of all the man in black was always the villain Well, he was the man in black. He was the hero. Normally, the guy who was well-versed in Shakespeare and Dickens and Tolstoy and, you know, quoting and and who had the Mandarin collars and was the dandy was the villain. But the other thing is the way he looked, if
4: you were to just glance at him and not know anything about the show, he did look like the villain. He was like as smart as the villain, but he was on your side. Mm -hmm. And he has all the power of evil, but all the choices of good.
0: Well, and he went to West Point, and he, uh, you know, he was a college graduate. You know, he was Cowboys a Union soldier. We're not right? this, and yeah, he was a Union soldier. That's a great point. You know, he fought for the North during the Civil War. And you know, there's an episode called Genesis where oh you my see God. his origin. Yeah.
2: Genesis. We were just talking Genesis. That-, <laughs> <Hear me> <laughs> Genesis! <laughs> that is such an amazing episode, and to think that it was—I think it was a seventh season episode. They were kicking it was out the final season. Fantastic it was a season episodes, premiere. right to the very end. And that's the story of Smoke and how he became paladin i mean i I, i'm suppose there was after he was out of the army after the civil war uh, um, he fell on he became a boozer and a gambler and he spent all his money and and his life was a wreck basically and he got into a situation where he had to do a favor for someone to get himself out of a fix and that was to get to kill to get rid of this gunfighter named smoke who's protecting a small town and he goes and faces off, and of course, smoke is like ten steps ahead of him all the way. And it's play- and he's dressed as we will know Paladin to be in the future, played by Richard Boone. So yeah, there's yeah. two characters yeah, yeah, in the yeah. show through mm-hmm. most of it. It's Richard Boone playing against Richard Boone, and it's just well, he meets his dark
4: side and defeats it, and he encompasses it into his like in episode three, the
1: enemy within. Yes, correct. <laughs> but, you know, another thing is that uh, even watch I watched this third season episode, we were talking about it uh, earlier, uh, The Chase. And when when Paladin meets this group of antagonists, the leader, the sheriff, could have been more of a mustache-twirling villain. And they end up having this conversation, and, and there's mutual respect there. And the sheriff immediately admires Paladin for the way he acts and the things that he says. And... um. There's a there was a comment I don't remember the exact comment but the sheriff's like you know both of us we might think differently but I think there's more there's more there's more about us that are, is the same than different and like I've always said about Star Trek Star Trek the original series did never it never had villains it had antagonists but never truly mustache twirling villains that was the great joy of that show well Have Gun Will Travel was kind of that way too there was there was sure there were villains there were bad guys because it was the old west but There was a lot more nuance going on in a a Western than you would see in, like, Bonanza.
2: Well, for instance, in a show where you might have gunfighter meeting gunfighter and they end up going out in the street and drawing on one another. This is an episode uh, I just watched. It was a Roddenberry episode. Um, I'm not sure what...
1: We should say he wrote 25 episodes. More
0: episodes than any other writer on Have No Travel. He
2: wrote 24 episodes out of 225 episodes that they had. He he wrote more... More episodes than he wrote A Star Trek. Well, I mean, he... He described himself in the making of Star Trek as the head writer on Have Gun Will Travel. And Sam Rolfe has said, well, there really was no such position as head writer on the show. But when you write 25 episodes of a show and you're a leading writer, I don't think it's that much of a suggestion. He's stretch the most prolific writer at. on Have Gun Will
0: Travel.
2: <laughs> in the first season, he wrote five episodes yeah. alone. Yeah. So he really set. Uh, but, but the episode that I watched last night had Paladin meeting a gunfighter. They're going to shoot it out and they decide to have breakfast first. Right. And the whole show is them sitting, talking and they have their gunfight at the end. Yeah. But it's when you talk about the nuanced relationship that's going on between these two guys, you've never really seen anything like that before. It's well, just
1: You not- know, now we see things like in Michael Mann's heat when 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 <laughs> Robert De Niro sits down with Al Pacino and they have this conversation, even though they're going after one another. I ain't going to like it. If I'm coming for you. You
2: know? Yeah, that's the I kind include, of show. Like, We're two
1: regular
4: guys. That it was. You know,
2: and it, and it really takes you by
0: surprise. Well,
4: there's a word for this. It's called adult. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that's something that's are they adulting on the show? <laughs> yes.
0: Well, uh, you know, you talked about Roddenberry's, you know, and 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 clearly, uh, so much of what he took away from Have Gun, because Have Gun was different than a lot of westerns. A lot of westerns were written by very conservative people. They're very were like a very conservative Manifest Destiny, American exceptionalism kind of view. You know, it was the traditional John Ford kind of uh, view. view of, but you know, Have Gun was different. Have Gun had respect for Native Americans. Yes. it extolled diversity. In a lot of cases, it had very strong roles for women. And it was very progressive. And I think these are all things that Gene took away from How Come We'll Travel. There's
2: an amazing episode called uh, Hayboy's Revenge.
0: Well, you should say who Hayboy is.
2: Well, Hayboy is an Asian Chinese who works at the Carlton Hotel, which is Paladin's headquarters. Mm -hmm. And uh, his name isn't Hayboy, but he got—people called him Hayboy all the time he adopted it as his name. And it's kind of derogatory, but— not he to took
4: him. it and he owned he, it. He, yes, yeah. he
2: took it and he owned it. And Paladin always respected that guy. And there was an episode where Hayboy just disappeared. And it turned out that his uncle had been killed on a... Um, uh, it was a, a gang working on the railroad. And Hayboy went out to try to find out what happened to him and ended up thrown in jail and they're going to hang him. Mm. Paladin goes after him and the two of them create a revolt among the Chinese workers. And it's just... It, that's one everybody should watch, and if I'm, I would like to recommend a couple of episodes. Yeah, to people who are listening,
0: that'd be great. Because you know, I, I'm not sure if it's available streaming, but you can purchase the complete series yes. on Amazon, very yeah. reasonably priced. Yeah. Yes. And um,
4: unfortunately, it is not available streaming anywhere that I could find. I think it it's was on for a while YouTube, a couple of years and ago. It was on
0: Netflix for a while. Yes. I don't think it is anymore. But CBS has a very nice box set. You know, there's not a lot of extra features, but it's it's it's, it's not very expensive. You can it order it on Amazon. It's and if anyone series. at
4: CBS All Access is listening, it might be a good idea to put that on your service to get people to subscribe.
2: Listen, and if you're listening, CBS and Paramount, it's all the same thing now. They should put together a Gene Roddenberry edition of Have Gun Will Travel and take three or four episodes and have people like us co- doing commentary on it.
4: And perhaps maybe even Gene Roddenberry himself.
5: <laughs> Gene, oh how appropriate to have you here with us! <laughs> I didn't even for see you come episode.
4: in. I, I snuck behind you, uh, Douglas.
2: I love everything you did on that show. So do I. I love you. Well,
4: I, I love everybody, especially uh, all the fans <laughs> who keep things going while I'm away.
0: What was it like to work on Have Gun Will Travel, Gene?
4: Well, it was wonderful being the head writer for those many years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I want to
2: mention two episodes that are my favorite episodes. They're both Gene Roddenberry episodes and, and, and need to be watched. One is called The Great Mojave Chase. Camels.
5: I suppose you think it's funny. Oh, John, I think the Desert Camel Corps was a good idea. Well, maybe you never had to ride a camel. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact, years ago. It was a good idea, and it should have worked. Trouble with you cavalry people, you tried to use camels like horses. Camel's a sand animal, you should have kept it on the desert. Well, thank Christopher, it's all over with. I sold the last one for him in Elkhorn, Nevada. And I need something to get my mind off of camels, and this isn't doing it. I'm beginning to see pink ones. For the third year, Mojave businessman Billy Joe Kane will bet that no rider can elude the town's posse for 48 hours. The game is open to any rider who will cover Mr. Kane's bet. By surrounding the desert waterhole, the posse has captured every contestant so far in less than 30 hours. Are you listening? I said I'm going to bathe in order cologne, get rid of the smell. Then I'm going to find some excitement. You said you sold the last one in Elkhorn, Nevada? Mm -hmm, To a prospector. (laughs) (laughs) Now what kind of a fool would want to buy a camel?
2: (laughs) And of course, Mojave always played a part in Star Trek, being Captain Pike's hometown, right? and we saw it uh, in the cage. Uh, It's such a crazy, off-the-wall, unusual episode. Uh, Paladin sitting in a carlton hotel goes through the newspaper looking for people who might need his help and while he's sitting there there's an army colonel who's stinking drunk and he's talking about how i just had to you know camels i never want to see another camel again the army brought camels in to try them out instead of horses
4: right to see how they would to behave see in how the it would environment be-
2: behave it didn't work out. now this is true yeah. they actually did this And so while he's going on and on about camels and these stinking animals, Paladin is reading about this town where the great Mojave chase takes place every year and that this town has had its water, its water has been cut off from up north. And he realizes that he could go there Mm -hmm. and set things straight. And his friend says, who would ever want one of those stinking animals? And he goes, well, you know, Jim could be your best friend. And the next scene is him buying the animal. He's Mm -hmm. buying a camel. He rides a camel into town. It's a hilarious sight. And um, basically enters the race racing on a camel with these big flat feet. There's no horse in the world that could stand up to a camel in the desert. I mean, Mm -hmm. they carry like five days' worth of water on them. And, of course, the people that they're that they he's racing against. They have no idea. But it's an amazing episode. It could be a Star Trek episode. Sure. There's no doubt about it. Then there's another one called uh, uh, Maggie O'Banion. Hmm. And it's an episode. It's it's so Gene Roddenberry. So great. He, uh, he is uh, some highwaymen mug him on the road. They take his clothes. They take his gun. They take everything. And he's on foot. And he comes upon this ranch that's being run by this woman, Maggie O'Banion. Well, she doesn't like him right away. But she dis- she gives him a job, and it turns out that the guys who mugged him work for her. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't go into the whole story, but basically, that he woos her like no one's ever been wooed before. Yeah, I mean-
0: Shakespeare, but she thinks he's just some you know drunk <laughs> you know lay about yeah, kind of you know uh, just no going no and then he starts to quote oh my God. literature it's so and oh it's amazing oh it's so great and, and
2: the thing is that she's like trying not to like him and yeah. now she he's reading like Byron and Shelley to her uh-huh. she starts cooking <laughs> and for, you can see her sp- and he
0: makes these gourmet <laughs> yes! meals and it's- you can
2: see her melting <laughs> it's just the most wonderful episode and at the end of course he's going to go on and there's a scene at the end that's right out of Star Trek you mm-hmm. know uh, I'll watch the stars, James. Where well, he goes
0: riding off, and yeah. she's there with her her like maid or yeah. housekeeper. Yes. And, and they watch him ride off. And well, she
2: says, "I'll never find help like that again." She goes, "You're right. I'll never find well, wait, help."
0: Wait like a that.
1: second. Are you <laughs> saying then that could we then say that Have Gun Will Travel is actually part of Star Trek canon? I think it is. And if that is true, couldn't they do an episode of Discovery where Captain Pike, because they brought Captain Don't Pike say on, it. Captain Pike <laughs> goes back in time. <laughs> And meets Paladin.
2: Well, you know, (laughs) there was a novel that came out we talked about called Ishmael in like 90 or something where Spock in San Francisco in the past plays a game of chess with Paladin at the Carlton Hotel. Now, uh, about five years ago, there was an episode of Star Trek Continues called The Pilgrim of Eternity where I play Paladin on the holodeck. Kirk and Spock, the two worlds of Roddenberry, run into each other. And And you talk to Kirk. Yes, and that, that, uh, what I what I had suggested to Vic Mignana who was doing the show, it never really happened, was that where Kirk might go to the holodeck and sit down with Paladin and talk strategy, because Paladin was a graduate of West Point, but I just thought it would, I, I would have loved to have seen that.
0: Well, he'd already met Morgan Earp, so he... Didn't... Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, what i say your emergency book. is real. I got to
1: meet Michael Forrest at your house, oh. at brunch, brunch at your house, and... What a, it was after you guys had shot that episode, and he is still this strapping, oh my God.
2: handsome, he's a rock,
1: virile, oh yes, <laughs> one of the he's nicest incredible. men in the world. Yeah. You know, so it what was a sweet so...
2: guy. Well, the thing was that um, um, I had met Luna, and we really hit it off, and Luna's like one of our best pals. Uh, She's awesome. And there was an Outer Limits episode, one of my favorites, called "It Crawled Out of the Woodwork." It has an Asner and Mike Forrest mm. in it. It's one of my all-time favorites, and I was enthusing to her, and I said, would you, would you come over some night and watch it with me? And she was like, sure. She goes, maybe you could tell me what it was about, because it's pretty oddball.
3: <clears throat> and she says,
2: can I bring Mike Forrest with me? And I'm like, what? No, I don't think <laughs> I had so. Met we him only have room point. for three.
3: And, oh and so
2: Mike Forrest and Barbara Luna came over, Dorothy made dinner, and we sat and watched Seattle Limits, and I taught them things about the episode. right. I, uh, Conrad Hall was the sure. the DP. I mean, this oh guy God. went on to be like uh, you know. I mean, he shot Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I mean, by
1: the way, shout out to Kino Video. They just released the second season of Outer Limits on Blu-ray. Oh, those restorations. Oh my, I have to. They're have as it. much a revelation as the Twilight Zone Blu-ray, the HD restorations of the Twilight Zone were. Yeah. I mean, it's which Bob Justman would
0: not have gotten Star Trek if it had not been for yes. his expertise.
2: Well, I mean, the connections, the hours. DNA, the star that. The DNA from Have Gun, Will Travel that ran through the man from UNCLE and He Out of Limits, all of that culminated in Star Trek. I mean, Bob Justman, you know, was uh, an AD.
0: Building on, on my work. Well,
2: it just goes <laughs> to show you that...
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> the... The, Rose the, of the community, the, the TV community and movie community was so much smaller in yeah. the 50s and 60s uh, than it is certainly now. Um, but that... Everyone knew everybody else, and it was all interconnected. People would go from job to job and bounce back and forth. And they were all professionals, and they all knew their jobs, and and there was no, you know, any slackers were, you know, quickly eliminated. And that's why all these things sort of fed into those things that we love now because all of them were on the path to do this stuff, and they were all quite talented in doing it. And
1: very uh, smart people.
4: They're well, very, that's yeah, it's of a course. really good
0: point. I mean, a lot of them weren't necessarily educated, but they were super smart because, and most a lot of these guys came from out of World War II, they were veterans. Um, they, they, they had lived life, and, and we've talked we say people about this live before. life, and now you know a lot of writers li- live television. Exactly. You know, we, we
4: talked about this before that a lot of the writers back then were uh, literate. And had had experience in living their lives, and now there's a lot of writers who have basically just seen TV.
1: Well, and those writers were also they were they wrote plays, they wrote short stories, they wrote they novels. They wrote everything.
0: They were not just yeah. writing television. And I want to I want to you know while we make this case because I think. A lot of the audience has never seen a Have Gone Will Travel, and they have to make a real effort to see it. So I'm trying to to close the pitch, and I would say you know some of the people that were on the show were Jack Lord, Charlie Bronson, Vincent Price was in an episode, James Coburn, George Kennedy, uh, Angie Dickinson, Petroni. Uh you know June Lockhart. Uh, well, I mean, it's, let me say you can find D some Kelly.
4: episodes on YouTube. Yes. I do not support. No, um, I agree uh, piracy of any kind, uh, but if you if you want to get a taste of it. They can be found. And yes. I will
0: say about piracy, in this case, <clears> being on YouTube, if it is not legally available, and that's your last resort, then I guess yeah. you have to do it. Now, if it were to be available, then I would say you should it, watch it through... It is written, available on DVD, proper 200 channels. bucks
4: for, for the entire run of the series. And that's a lot, of, is, episodes. Is is a a lot of episodes. Which is a great deal for seven years. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, it, the beauty of
2: YouTube is that I understand what you're saying about piracy, but there are people who are going to go there and discover how Gun will travel, and then, Absolutely. The and then they will definitely. Once you get a taste of it and you see how unusual it was and how engaging it is, you will want the whole series.
0: Well, and and we mentioned this before too. You will see so many um, Star Trek chestnuts or or, or um, connections, connections yeah. uh, or Easter eggs before there was a Star Trek. Robert April is a character. Right? Right. And, yes, and, and Pike and, and Pike is a is character. A character. And, uh, you know, because what you realize – you don't realize it's like when you're writing that much television, you can't afford to come up with new concepts all the time. You're constantly recycling stuff that you did in the past or maybe that you didn't sell or whatever. So it it was inevitable that Gene would look back on stuff he'd done in the past, you know, which he continued to do through his whole career and um, – so there's so many – little nuggets of Star Trek in Have Gun. But most importantly, the philosophy of Star Trek is Mm -hmm. in every frame of Have Gun Will Travel. And he's such a dynamic character, Richard Boone. And he was such an amazing guy. We haven't talked about that. I mean, you know, Sam Rolfe ended up leaving the show he came back and wrote Genesis but um because he got in a fist fight with Richard Boone right? oh, that's you know right. yeah you know and basically he had he ended up leaving the show no. and Frank Pearson took over I think uh, who later ran the Writers Guild but Richard Boone was someone who cared deeply about the show he ended up directing a ton of episodes he was very engaged with the show and and you know he was a star who he just loved the show and it was a huge hit for many seasons mm-hmm. um you know we because we're we, we're Younger, it's the first time I can say that. Remember, like the Love Boat and Fancy Island on Saturday nights. But for a certain generation, it was Have Gun Will Travel and Gunsmoke was that Saturday night. There's a picture
2: of me, my first grade class picture. I have a Have Gun Will Tie bolo on with the chess piece logo on it in the first grade.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if you've ever seen Rob Reiner's film *Stand by Me*, of right course, now, the, the the kids, the four kids, as they're marching down the railroad tracks to find the body of Ray Brower, sing the theme song, yes. the theme song, yep. and yeah. one of them is Wesley Crusher, and yep. one of them is Wesley yep. Crusher, <laughs> and of course, there was a radio show as well. There was a yes, How
2: Gun Will it, Travel. Radio it it wasn't voiced by uh, Richard Boone. No, by Richard it Boone. No. Uh,
0: but it was interesting about the radio show. Was in most cases the TV shows were adaptations of radio popular right. radio shows. Right. In right. this uh, case, it was the opposite. Yeah, the radio. Yeah. yeah, the radio show came after the TV show, and it wasn't Richard Boone. He also had a name in the in the. Uh, no,
2: you know the name, and and it's funny. I just read about this. The, the name was in one of the novelizations and it's not considered mm-hmm. canon. It was Clay Alexander. Right, right. Is his name. Although I've had people who on the card it says Wire Paladin. They thought Wire was his first name. Right. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Facts. Telex. Paladin. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is, that is, oh, That's God, that funny. is so funny. You know, those business cards, it's, it's, it's so cool. And, you know, Think it has that, that the, great uh, Bernard um, Herrmann
2: score. Oh, well, that was oh. the thing. That it was CBS, Bernard Herman was basically in charge of the music library and recording music for shows. That music would turn up across. I mean, if you love the Twilight Zone and you watch Have Gun Will Travel, you're going to hear a lot of the same right. atmosphere and refrains. Yeah. and that gives Have Gun Will Travel this uh, atmosphere of mystery uh, and it, it's and the fantastical and yeah. yes, the fan it, it really does.
0: Uh, there are some episodes that are borderline supernatural not a lot but there are times oh, well, where Well
2: Roddenberry wrote one uh, the monster of something around yeah. Ridge which yeah, is yeah. a fun episode.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh,
4: well like like most of these great shows they skittered back and forth between genres occasionally. Mm-hmm. And that the ideas were too big to be you know compressed into one. So the you know the most uh, you know that's what's so great about Star Trek because it's not it's not a science fiction show. It's an adventure show that goes all sorts of different directions. So it, it can't be it can't be you know conveniently put in a certain drawer. I wish that were true today.
0: It, well, it's funny because I mean uh, my, we were up for uh, a procedural that was going to shoot in Canada. Uh, Steve Kozier and I to run the show and. You know, we, we pitched a whole bunch of really quirky things, and one of them we said we could really lean into, uh, you know, the first Nation, first nations mythology of do an episode of supernatural, sort of steeped in there's all these great lore, you know, the the, the Native Americans of Canada, and do something really cool with supernatural, and you know that would be it was just an example, and it's like well this is a procedural, and ultimately we didn't get the game. We said oh we, we you guys are too th- you're great you're great writers and great showrunners, but like you're too genre. It was like two genres. it's like it was like so crazy we just started with like the whole thing about a show is you should never know what you're tuning in for and every episode should be um, you know something different you know and like not not be in a box And the everybody corp- wants everything in a box the corporate mindset of modern media companies will
4: not allow things to be out of their box that's why we have so much of the things that we have today. That are in the box. That are They're all in the box. <laughs> What's they're in the box? All,
0: They're
1: all stuck in the box. <laughs> the mystery box. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need to unpack. Now shows are about mysteries that the, the even the creators don't know the answer right. to. They come up with a premise, like manifest, but there's no reason for it to – it just doesn't work. And ultimately, it will never leave you with a satisfying answer.
0: Well, I got to say, have we made the case for Have Gone, Will Travel? Have we made the case why this is a show that – People should watch or rewatch, and why it's so important, especially to Star Trek fans. Give it um, a try. This is your homework. <laughs> this is your, yeah. <laughs> nice callback. Because they you won't be
2: sorry. I mean, I have so many people on my Facebook page who I introduce have Gun will travel to because I've been collecting the gear and trying to get it all together for a few years now. And uh, I posted today that I was going to be on Inglorious Trexpert's talking about have Gun will travel. You would be surprised at how many people said, "I'm hooked on this show because of you." Oh, that's great. You know, nice. uh, and. Honestly, if you love Star Trek, you'll, the original series especially, uh, you will get hooked on Have Gun, Will Travel, and you will get hooked on Richard Boone as Paladin. He is such a cool character. Uh, and, and you know what? I think he could take Kirk.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think there's well, also... Well, are fighting words. <laughs> there's, a, there's a larger point, I think, that to be made. When we were growing up, As kids, we didn't make distinctions between whether something was in black and white or something was in color. It just was what it was. The Twilight Zone was in black and white. Like, I never thought to myself, like, "Ah, I'm not going to watch this because it's old. That's just what it was. The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, uh, Have Gun, Will Travel. And a lot of our great older Programs and media is really getting lost to history. Kids today, they don't, there's so many choices and there's so much stuff out there and there's so much to keep up with that people are like, no, I have to watch, you know, all 10 episodes of Homecoming. Why would I watch an old show from t- t- 60 years
2: the ago? The funny
4: thing is, I was spared from that whole, uh, you know, black and white versus color because we didn't have a color TV until I was <laughs> 10 years old.
2: I watched the entire first season of the original series, yeah. Star Trek, in black and white. Yeah, yeah it
0: looked great in black and white. It looked it great.
2: It, as a matter of fact, I recommend to anyone, to, when you watch the original series, especially first season, I don't know if, I, I assume you could turn the color off on TVs today if you know want to. yeah you can. <clears throat> yeah, you can. Turn it off. Watch it in black and white.
1: Yeah. Uh, watch I, The Empath in black and white. I, I mean, oh, that's
2: interesting. The shows are beautiful in black. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I just think the kid, any not kids today, but anybody <laughs> who's interested in media or storytelling—yes, if, if nothing else, have gun Will Travel will teach you how to tell an incredible story like The Twilight economically. Zone economically in 25 minutes, extremely yes. lyric.
0: And what Rob says—he made a really great point. He said, you know, because there's, there's not the water cooler anymore, but there are these buzzy shows, and there's so many that are constantly coming out that everyone's trying to keep up with what the hot show. Oh, well, it's, this week it's Handmaid's Tale, and next week it's you know Homecoming, and you know ne- next week it's you know Amazing Miss, you know Mrs. And they're all great shows, but there definitely isn't this desire for people or you know to go back and embrace old shows because there's constantly new product. And it's happening now in the sales market too. Nobody's looking to buy catalogs. Nobody's looking to buy old shows. They're only interested in stocking the cabinet with new whatever is new. Because if it's not new, it's not because they're good. Now have gone. Give suffer, me a new bottle Have gone also. <laughs> also right, stuff exactly <laughs> suffers <laughs> under the you know the the this. Um, uh, disdain that people have for black and white, which is absurd. You
2: would think that having all of this stuff available is a bonus, but it really isn't. Uh, when, when I was a kid, there were just three networks. Yep. That's and it. there wasn't that, I mean, we're talking the 60s, and sound came in. I mean, they, they had to fill a lot of airtime, and they used a lot of movies starting with in the late 20s, running up to almost... You know the 1960s. Right. So there was this finite pool of uh, classic films that were being run constantly. You could get your education. It, the spectrum, the band was so fine. Mm-hmm. Now there's just too much. You don't have a guide right. to 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 make sure that you watch stuff that.
4: There's no guide for putting you back together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, and that was you know you, you know part of our whole sister podcast 4:30 movie was an ode back to the 4:30 where you had. A show on TV that would curate for you, and you had no choice yes. to watch it. Yeah. To do something else.
2: I remember now. I'm from New York area. You mm-hmm. are? Yes, right? I am. I'm um from Brooklyn. Million dollar movie. But I'm
0: much younger than sure. you. I, w- I was born <laughs> when uh, Deep Space Nine emissary was on that day. When oh I was my god! Born. No.
5: <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have been. I saw Free Enterprise. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I,
0: I, I was. I was five when I made that movie. Wow, you really looked, In your mind. Yeah. I still <laughs> am. Yeah, I still That's some wish
4: fulfillment there. But yeah, the, the million dollar movie on Channel million 9. million dollar
2: movie. I yeah. mean, I could still remember the spiel if you enjoyed King Kong. Would you <laughs> like to see any part of King Kong again? Or And they would show King Kong like... Every Thanksgiving. Four times a day. Yeah. All week long, right? It was million dollar. Well, yes, Thanksgiving you get King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, like mm-hmm. uh, Babes in Toyland. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, when
0: we, and we still remember this. Well, I mean, like we all remember, like when we were kids, like you know what the movies were when they were shown, what channel they were on. Yeah, I mean it's insane. Well, I mean, I remember as a kid,
2: we didn't have video recorders. There were no DVDs no. or anything. The Wizard of Oz was on once a year Yep,
0: yep on, China, on NBC. And everyone watched it. Oh, it was CBS. Watched CBS yeah. it. Gone everyone with watched the wind it. Everyone watched it. And NBC. it was
2: so exciting. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's funny. I was watching Wolf of Wall Street the other day, and there's a scene where it's like uh, uh, Meathead, uh, Carl. Reiner, Robert Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner yeah. is watching TV. If someone calls him in the middle of the equalizer, it's like, what? God <laughs> damn it, who's calling me? Because, and his wife's yelling. Maury, you're missing it. Well, you really missed it. Right. If you missed it, you missed it. Yeah. You might it may never be on again. I mean, that's the way Star Trek was. If you missed an see episode, see you next year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, I mean, yeah. I would go crazy. You know my story about how I I'm I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. It's a private little war, and that interference started coming oh, over yeah, and no. ruining <laughs> the picture and the sound, and I couldn't see or hear anything, and I went
0: crazy. Why couldn't this have been the alternative? Factor? <laughs> <laughs>
2: But I tried, I'm missing it, the best parts of Nancy Kovacs, it, it, oh, and she was beautiful. It, it was a it, it was a CB guy. A guy had a CB. Oh, he was geez. transmitting. All of
0: a sudden, you hear breaker, breaker. Oh
2: yeah, and the <laughs> picture was. You know,
0: yeah, oh, and, my God. and I
2: tracked this guy down. I went, I, I'm like, <laughs> dressed as know, paladin, 13 years old. No, uh, yeah. I tried, I went through the whole You had your crystal radio set
1: and you're triangulating.
2: Um, basically, I was looking for big antennas wow. and I knocked on the guy's door, 13 years old, and I did, gave him this whole speech. It was him because of time, <laughs> right, and, right, and right. I gave him this whole speech about how important Star Trek was to the future of mankind and you know, the whole Kirk spiel, yeah. and he never did it again. Maybe he was afraid he didn't want me to come back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that crazy kid. Well, look, I, you know, we I think we made an incredible uh, case for have gone, but you know, we can't let you go without discussing your incredible career. I mean, let's face it. I mean, for you to go from winning, you know, an Oscar for your stunning work on Dick Tracy and having worked, you know, with your idol Dick Smith previously, oh uh, to then uh, working on Star Trek for many, many years this is an incredible story. Maybe you just want to tell us a little bit before oh, we gee, wrap up. I mean,
2: I've always. Uh... Uh, Felt unbelievably lucky. I mean, I got to work with a a lot of people that I idolized. How did that happen? I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old and I'm dead on the side of the road, bleeding out somewhere, and you know how your brain (laughs) Brain. gives you those, you (laughs) know... (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I mean, when when I got interested in makeup, and uh, I found out who Dick Smith was, and, and that was an epiphany for me, because when the exorcist came out and to me, it's still one of the scariest movies ever made. It's an amazing film. And I went and I saw that and had the bejesus scared out of me. And, uh, uh, the Linda Blair makeup was mind blowing. But about four years later, I saw a movie that had Max von Sydow in it, who right. plays the 86 year old father Marin in the movie. And in this movie, he's only in his forties. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. And to realize that he was in his forties when, when he shot that movie, uh, And you never even thought he had makeup on. I mean, sure, monsters and possessed people, you know, I mean, of course they're makeup. But to do a a convincing makeup of an old man, everyone sees old people, we know what they look like, and be totally. and That was a moment where I knew I, I wanted to do makeup. And I really started reading up and I found out who Dick Smith was. And I found out. That he lived about 15 miles north of New York City in Larchmont. I mean, I figured he'd be in Hollywood, but a guy like him can you know would be able to work from anywhere, you know. And uh, I always have to say this: a, a guy named Doug Murray, maybe you know Doug, uh, who's a writer, and uh, he, he, I always remember he wrote a comic book called "The Nam," and he was in Vietnam, and it really is an amazing comic book. But um, I, uh, he had a collection of stuff. Makeup stuff and, from Planet of the Apes. And I went out to his house and I brought pictures of some of the things I was doing. He says, You know what? I just interviewed Dick Smith. I'm going to give you his telephone number. And it took me a couple of weeks to build up the nerve to call sure. him. But Dick Smith kept me on the phone, giving me information. And, <laughs> and three months later, he invited me to come to work on the hunger. Yeah which was a Tony Scott. Oh, like,
0: I know all about The I didn't hunger. know
1: you The Hunger. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which has another incredible old age makeup that Dick did. Oh, my Smith God. Did. Yeah. The David Dick Bowie's Bowie. old age makeup where he, de- he literally ages 50 years in While an waiting afternoon. waiting in the doctor's
2: office, which is how we all feel sitting waiting in the doctor's office. Oh, it's but such a great scene. I watched him sculpt those makeups. I mean, it that was my, my college of prosthetic knowledge. I mean, because it had everything. It had pros- subtle prosthetic makeups and extreme prosthetic makeups and what they called then change-o-heads, puppet-heads of mummies. Yeah, uh, because the end of the movie. Crumbling mummies. I mean, mean, today, that stuff is pretty easy to have a crumbling mummy, but then you had to figure out how you were going to do it physically.
1: And there was a lot of them.
2: Yeah. um, An amazing, amazing film.
0: I I talk at length about the Hunger on Our Sister, Sean, 430 movie when we did Vampire Week, and I I tell the story, much to my chagrin, of how... um, uh, Basically I was in high school and you know, at the time film critics actually mattered and my mother read a review, a rave review of The Hunger by Vincent Camby. And uh, she said, Oh, we should go see this movie. They said it's very (laughs) sty So my mother and I went to go see The Hunger, which is the greatest lesbian vampire movie (laughs) of all time. Neither of us realizing now, you know, I know a lot of people think the vampire lovers, but I like The Hunger, okay? So it was the most embarrassing. (laughs) But I love I love that movie. I and particularly, you know, all that early stuff. I mean the whole Bauhaus montage in the the first ten minutes, the um that beautiful scene in the doctor's office where he's waiting to see Susan Sarandon and and, and starts to age. Uh I mean it's 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 such a great stylish uh, you know, that it's along so with far, Crimson Tide is probably my favorite um Tony Scott movie. I just uh I just love the hunger. It's just, uh, you know what? I gotta we got a wax rhapsodic about the
1: hunger. I got to. I got to. <laughs> so, so in 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 the mid '80s, Catherine Deneuve had somebody convinced her oh, to do a, a a perfume line, Deneuve, and so she was making a, a, an Catherine. American tour, and she was going to different Nordstrom stores. She came to Nordstrom, which is a, a Seattle-based uh, department store, but it's everywhere. She's appearing in Nordstrom. I'm like. Oh my God. I mean, she's a goddess. She's umbrellas of Cherbourg. She's one of the great screen idols of France. I mean, yeah, Belle du jour, uh, unbelievable. She's one of the most beautiful women that's ever lived. So I wait in line with all these matrons that have like their <laughs> the, the 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 folder <laughs> for for this new perfume. And I have my Japanese laser discs oh, of so the funny. umbrellas of Cherbourg and the hunger. Oh my god. <laughs> <The, laughs> and I finally get up there, and I'm the only kid, like you know, I'm the only young person in line. I'm about the only dude in line, <laughs> and you could tell. I mean, she's French. She's putting on a very good face, and I walk up there and I'm just beaming. And I'm thinking to myself, "This woman is the w-. still. She was probably about f- close to fifty because she was already forty when forty two when she did the hunger. So I put down my umbrellas still, of Sherbourg laziness, like, uh, yeah, yeah. and I ask her to sign it. No, I mean I know, but I mean. <laughs> I, and she just looks up at me, and she smiled, and it was one of the greatest smiles I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And because and she, she knows I know who who she is, and I respect her, and she signs this, and she says, her. "This is one of my favorite wow. movies I ever did." And then of course, then of course, I put down the hunger. Laser disc. <laughs> she's just kind of like, I want to think so she winked at me, but she didn't. <laughs> you know, but she also saw that. She's just smiling and she was like, I like you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> and on That's that day, day. <laughs> you became a man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than my bummits.
2: Now, there's another movie that I worked on. I know you're a big fan of Manhunter.
1: Oh. Yes.
2: Which I, and that was an adventure, let me tell you. I mean, were you I was- bummed
1: out that they didn't use the, the tattoo? In the final release version of the film? It was kind of
2: a surprise, and I think that he should have used it. Uh, but, and 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 the tattoo was done by, a, we brought a guy in named Keith Birdsong, who's a painter. He does Who book painted covers painted Star
1: Trek novel yes, covers. Yes, he painted Star
2: Trek novel, and we're still <laughs> friends to this day. Um, he, uh, he had just gotten out of the military, and he used to do tattoos for his friends using water uh, markers, color mm-hmm. markers. And uh, we brought him in, because he could do these temporary markers that look really, you know, fantastic. Actually, the funny thing about that was, one girl came in and he did a tattoo on her, and the other girls saw it and like, oh, I have to have a tattoo. And pretty soon, Keith was like doing tattoos on. They were lined up. They were lined up, and I kid you not, they were taking their clothes off, and he was doing tattoos all over their, you know, up their back, around their torso, and and uh, that was in the makeup department. And we would go down to stage it was shot in North Carolina and we had made a lot of enemies because of that. I mean like a bottle cap would come whizzing out of the permanence on stage and go right by my ear. Wow. Because the guys were all pissed off their their yeah. all their girlfriends and stuff were taking their clothes off and we didn't do it. It was key, you know, but uh it, it was hilarious. Yeah, Manhunter was an amazing film and uh uh, Another
0: yeah, great was, use of music and it got a in that. Yeah. Oh, that's so great Michael that Mann. last. Man,
2: what a what an interesting character he was.
0: Michael Mann? Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, um uh the last week of shooting was out in the bog where they built Dollar Hyde's house. Um, Mel Melbourne was a production designer and he oh. was he said that was it. He was done with Ma- with Michael Mann, never again. <laughs> but the the place was sinking into the bog an inch a day. And um He was really under the gun to finish that movie. And Dino De Laurentiis was threatening to pull the plug on the movie. And on the last, it was the last night of shooting. And don't ask me why, but Michael Mann, there's a scene where Dollar Heide is shooting from inside the house out. Michael Mann wanted to use real ammunition in a shotgun. Mm -hmm. And he thought it looked better. And I'm, it doesn't look better. I don't know why he would think that. I mean, it has no real, there's no real muzzle flash. You could barely see anything. Pellets passed through the wardrobe truck, and the effects guys quit that night. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, there with a, a, a guy I was working on a picture, Neil Martz. We were there together, and we're looking at each other going, you know, they're going to come to us and ask us to finish the picture for all the bullet hits, try to you know, make things, tr- mm-hmm. tricks to do all the bullet hits. Mm-hmm. And at that very moment, the door opened up on the trailer, and we just laughed because we knew what was going <laughs> to happen. And we were g- decided we didn't want to get involved. And literally every department head came and begged us to do it because if we don't get finished today, they're going to make us come back. And so we actually had a blast making – we took eggs, painted them black, blew out the inside like Easter eggs, filled them with blood. You could throw them, you know, to hit somebody with a a blood hit. Uh, The cop who goes up to the front door who gets shot in the face by Dollarhide, I took a – I got a wig from wardrobe, cut it up, uh, Barbie – uh, 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 pinned it to the, to his head, attached a monofilament line to it, put jam and blood under it. And I said, when you jerk your head back, I'm going to yank the string and the back of your head's going to come off. I mean, that's how we did the movie. That's how we got it done. And it was just... I loved working with Michael Mann because he was a he was a loose cannon. You never knew what he was going to do. The longest production meeting I was ever on was Manhunter. I was there just to talk about the makeup. Mm-hmm. I ended up having to be there through the entire thing. the The production meeting was like seventeen hours long. Wow! And they would argue for an hour over the color of the telephone on the desk. <laughs> but you know, look at the movies. Yeah. You know, it's Michael well. The Mann.
0: conventional wisdom, of course, is that Silence of the Lambs is the best of those films. I think Manhunter is by far. I I, I love Manhunter. Uh, so do
2: I. And and I'll tell you, I. From being on set, it looked like chaos. But then when I saw it, I was so amazed by it. And I didn't go with any of my friends because I didn't think it was going to be any good. Right. And I saw it. And I came back that night and I said, you got to see this movie. I can't believe how good it is. And the funny thing was that we're all waiting outside to go in and a limo pulls up and the window rolls down and it's Bill Peterson. <laughs> he just was looking at the
0: lines. Right, right, and it was right.
2: like, oh, my God. And I was like, Bill. <laughs> and, of course, I knew him really well. Um, but... Uh, uh Yeah, that that it, that was a real surprise, and it has so much style and the characters. I mean, uh, Dennis Farina.
0: Yeah, oh Dennis Farina, so, he's, he's and they went on to do a ton of a wonderful kid. work. He died too young. I know. Uh,
2: Bill, there's no doubt that Manhunter was the pilot for. Uh,
0: CSI, CSI, oh, CBS. Sure. How much?
1: How much does CSI owe to Manhunter? You're not kidding. How much does CBS owe to Manhunter? How much yeah. does
0: Bill Pearson own to Manhunter? <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't to Live and Die in L.A. that got him that gig.
1: But it should have been. Uh, yeah. I
0: mean, no, <laughs> we don't, if we get Rob started on to Live and Die in L.A., that's gonna be another hour. But you know, we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta wrap <laughs> up. But, but, but. I gotta tell you. Be, hold
2: on a second. Yeah. I don't. Uh, we were working on. Were we working on Manhunter when Live and Die? Yes. When, to when Live a and Die in L.A. opened while we were in North Carolina. and we went, to, we went to see it at a local theater in Cape Fear or something like that. And we were goofy as hell that night. We were laughing and yelling at the screen and stuff like that. And when the movie was over, I turned around and Dino was sitting two oh. rows behind <laughs> us. <laughs> and I'm like, are we fired? I don't know. Uh-huh. You know that's the thing. They couldn't just. You know we're not easy to replace. If you're doing prosthetics, it's not right, yeah, like yeah. You're a hairstylist or something like that. So.
0: Well, I got to ask you one thing before we wrap up, which is, of course, you have this wonderful story about how, when you first started working on Star Trek, uh, how Gene Roddenberry called you over, and I, I there's so much to talk about. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about your oh, love Star to. Trek, um, uh, your times with Star Trek and Galactic, of course. But let, oh, let's. Um, but but if you can, we can end with that wonderful story of you meeting Gene at uh, on set after you won the Oscar. Oscar. that's a terrific
2: well I mean it was when Dick Tracy ended I'm going nuts because I know they're shooting second season TNG while we're doing Dick Tracy pretty much I think uh, they were about to start up on season three it was my memory and um, I'm going nuts because that's really where I want to be and I had made friends with Bob Justman at that point and uh, as soon as Dick Tracy finished I went over to Paramount and I begged I begged Mike Westmore to let me come work on Star Trek. Please, 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 can I come work on Star Trek? Please, please, please. And he thought I was crazy.
1: I bet you said it just like that I to him. did. I did. I did. I did. Just like Spike Lee.
2: I, please, please. I, I, I was so, I'm like, Mike, he says, you're doing big pictures and stuff. I'm going like, to know, man, this, this is where I want to be. This is where I need to be. Star Trek, this is it. And so he brought me on. And, so, and for the next three years, until I went over to the art department, I worked for Mike Westmore on Star Trek, and had just the greatest time, and that cast was so much fun. But when I first got there, you know, when you're on a show for a long time, it becomes a big family. But at that point, most people didn't know who I was yet, and uh, I was standing at the craft service table, and the first AD comes over and says, uh, "You're Doug, Doug, Doug Drexler," and I'm like, "Yeah." She says, uh, "Mr. Roddenberry would like to speak to you," and I'm like, <laughs> and I literally said to her, "I go, what? Am I fired?" And she led me onto the Enterprise D bridge, and Gene was sitting at the back of the bridge in a tall director's chair. And it's like, you know, one of the greatest moments I could imagine. i had a lot of great moments, mm-hmm. and I walked up to the back of the bridge, and he, he he just want he just wanted to shake my hand and tell me what a wonderful job we did on Dick Tracy, and I was like aghast. I mean. Anybody who works in the business knows that producers generally don't like to build you up too much or play you too many compliments. They don't want you to get a big head. And here's a guy who found out I was on stage and had them go get me and bring me to the bridge. And it was just one of the most amazing moments. Although I had a, although the first time I was working on there was one time, it was yesterday's Enterprise. I was on the bridge of the Enterprise C, uh, uh, when they first arrive, and I'm making sure everyone has perspiration and blood on them and stuff like that. And I sense someone watching me. There's no one else around. And I and I, and I look over my shoulder, and Roddenberry's sitting there in a tall director's chair watching me work. And I'm like, <gasps> you know.
4: <laughs> I I didn't want to compliment you, Doug. I just wanted to let you know that I had my eye on you all the time. <laughs> so you better great watch great bird it. was watching.
0: <laughs> well, I got to say, Doug, it was great having you. Rob, it was always a pleasure having you here. And uh, I want to remind our audience you can follow Inglorious Trek Experts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting show topics and give us feedback, uh, particularly uh, um, you know, if you need to reach Gene Roddenberry. Uh, in addition, if you'd like to you know, like what you hear, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can hear new episodes of Inglorious Trek Experts on our new nights, Sundays, wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, Don't miss uh, our sister show, Disco Nights, with host Chase Masterson and her special guests every week, who hopefully will not be bagging on the first season of Star Trek any longer because I will pull the plug. uh, (laughs) New episodes (laughs) premiering every Thursday night. And uh, finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter, Natalie, and everyone here at the Electric Search Network for making the show possible. We couldn't do without you guys. And until next week, on behalf of Doug, Rob, Darren, and myself, keep on trekking. Shh.
3: Engage. Paladin, paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, paladin, far, far from home. Have gun, will travel, reach the cart of a man. A knight without armor in a savage land. His fast gun for hire heats the calling wind. A soldier of fortune is the man called Paladin. Paladin, paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, paladin, far. He travels on to wherever he must A chestnut of silver is his badge of trust There are campfire legends that the plainsmen speak Of the man with the gun, of the man called Paladin Paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, paladin, far, far from home, far from home, far from home. home.